Welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast, produced by the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. The CWD provides the historical context and strategic analysis to inform understanding of today's geopolitical challenges, promoting discussion through research, teaching, consultancy and public events. Hello, I'm Thomas Mills and I'm lecturer in Diplomatic and International History at Lancaster University and Deputy Director of the Centre for War and Diplomacy. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Stephen Bowman, who is a lecturer in British political history at Stirling University. Stephen works primarily on political and economic relations between the United States and Great Britain in the 19th and 20th centuries, and was winner of the Transatlantic Studies Association's Donald Cameron Watt Prize in 2013. He has published a number of journal articles and in 2018 published his first book, which is the topic of our conversation today. The book is called The Pilgrim Society and Public Diplomacy, 1895 to 1945, and is published by Edinburgh University Press. As the title suggests, the main focus of the book is the elite dining club, the Pilgrim Society, and its role in the broader political relationship between the US and Britain in the first half of the 20th century. Stephen depicts the pilgrims and their activities as an early form of what we now refer to as public diplomacy, and as such, the topic is of great interest to us here at the CWD. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Tom. So if I can just begin, um, this is the first book-length academic treatment, I think, of the Pilgrim Society. So why did you decide that this group warranted such a study? Yeah, so it's the first book-length study, as you say. They do do crop up occasionally in articles on Anglo-American relations, you'll see them mentioned, um, but never really explored much more than somebody saying they exist and they're an important uh, group. Um, If I'm totally honest, it was, so the book came out of my PhD um, at Northumbria University, and it, it mostly came from so combining the research of my main supervisor, uh, Sylvia Ellis, uh, alongside um, the work of uh, Tanya Bweltman, who was at Northumbria at the time, who looks at clubs and societies and associational culture. So it was a, a combination of, of applying um, associational culture studies, uh, clubs and societies to the question of Anglo-American relations in the period of the great rapprochement as uh, Bradford Perkins called it. So yeah, it's combining these different things. Um, alongside, at the time, it, it was alongside a, a project at Northumbria on, on English identity um, and English diaspora studies. So it was kind of tangential to that. So also brought in questions of Anglo-Saxonism as well. So it was, it was a, st- a study that emerged from interest in Anglo-American relations, um, associational culture, and questions of sort of English identity and Anglo-Saxon uh, transatlantic uh, identities. Thank you for that. I think that those different aspects come through in the book, and that's what appealed to me about the book in large sense, in that it it, it focuses on this specific society, but it touches on so many broader issues of Anglo-American relations in that period. What you talk about is that kind of associational culture, these kind of elites in the United States and, and Great Britain, as well as this kind of broader conceptual theme of, of public diplomacy. Um, so hopefully we'll have time to touch on, on all of those aspects. But if you can maybe just tell us a little bit about 
how the pilgrims came into existence and, and the broader political context at, at the time. Yeah, so they were formed in 1902 in London, uh, firstly, and had a branch the year after in New York in 1903. And they were sort of part of a, a wider impulse at the time that also included groups like the Anglo-American League that was founded uh, just, uh, I think it was 1898, 99, just after the Spanish-American uh, War. So it was that time of, of rapprochement, as they say, between uh, Britain and America. Uh, Britain at the time acknowledging, I suppose, that it wanted to bring to an end a period of so-called splendid isolation and acknowledging that uh, some kind of settlement with the US was an important aspect of, of that. So motivated some of the people involved in the pilgrims to come together um, and it tended to be people like um, journalists, uh, businessmen, and the main figure to begin with was a man called Harry Britton, who was all those things. He's sort of a journalist, uh, politician. My next question actually was maybe just if you could tell us a bit about the kind of key individuals, both at the founding and then and going forward into the period that you, you studied. I mean, who were these people? What motivated them? And 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 what was their relationship with respective governments as well? Yeah, so the so the main the main figure was this guy Harry Britton, who who I've wrote about before as well, uh, written about before as well. And he was he became a conservative MP after the after the First World War. But at that time he was a a sort of um, failed lawyer. I'm not, is that fair to say that he was somebody who had various different uh, pursuits anyway? He was legal legally trained. He didn't really pursue that career beyond start of the 20th century really um, and he was not the main he wasn't the founder of it but he was the main um, the most active person in setting it up once it had been created um, it was a man called Lindsay Russell who was a another legal figure in London at the time who more rightfully would be called the founder but it was Harry Britton who dominated uh, the society all the way through really um, into the 20s in fact both as uh, an organizer um, and as honorary secretary, so he he had um, connections um, all over the place, really, uh, politically, uh, journalistically. Um, he was previously involved with Joseph uh, Chamberlain of the tariff reform uh, campaigning at the time. Um, he, he's a hard man to sort of pin down, but he was the main the main light um, in. London and in New York, um, a similar man, a sort of insurance broker called uh, George Wilson, was um, again a, a strange kind of guy, a Republican uh, figure who had many interesting contacts. He was the main kind of mover and shaker in New York. And for much of the, the first uh, few years of the society, uh, both George Wilson and Harry Britton uh, corresponded a great deal with, with each other and I suppose ran, ran both branches in cooperation. Would you say it was primarily in terms of its initiation, was it primarily a British initi initiative, would you say? And the Americans followed or how did it work on, on, on either side of the Atlantic? Yeah, I would, I would say it's mostly a British um, uh, initiative. Again, because of, of that kind of context of, of people interested in British foreign policy were 
conscious of having to have some kind of conciliation with the US. Um, and so for that reason, it did have if that, yeah, had that, yeah, uh, there was a, a greater British need for a group that promoted Anglo-American relations than there was for an, an American group. Um, and for that reason, yes, it was mostly uh, to begin with. That's uh, a British uh, initiative. Once the once the organisation is is up and running, um, maybe could you just tell us a little bit about the principal ways in which the Pilgrim Society went about their work and influenced relations between the United States and, and Great Britain? Yeah, it's really mostly through kind of uh, banquets. Uh, and uh, sort of public functions, they would ho- they would host banquets typically in some of the big hotels in, in London and New York, um, Savoy in London, the Waldorf Astoria in New York, uh, Delmonico's, um, these kind of places. And they would yeah hold host functions often for for statesmen, diplomats. The first big good example that I, I don't think I mentioned it in the book. Uh, I think I took it out of the book, and I may come back to it. Um, they had a, had a banquet for the the participants in the, the final discussions for the Alaska boundary dispute, um, and they, they, they hosted Canadian, uh, British, uh, and American commissioners in London to kind of try and you know promote a more positive uh, spin on on that diplomatic controversy at the time. So most mostly mostly by by banquets, which had a typically as a keynote speech that was then quite heavily publicized in the press. They would use that quite often to, to sort of talk up notions of Anglo-American cooperation. I suppose this the contention I would have also is that it isn't just about um, a public speech, speechifying, they also gave people a chance to come together and sort of elite network, um, it, that kind of unofficial space that brought politicians with diplomats and journalists together that up to a point oiled some of the wheels of diplomacy at the time. So yeah, so there's two aspects to, I guess, sort of giving a platform for those politicians to sort of get that message out there that, that might then then improve relations between the US and Britain, but also creating that, that forum for people to come together and to, to have what you know is, is kind of informal diplomatic negotiations or, or, or simply relationship forming, I guess. Um, this is maybe a tough question. How effective do you think the pilgrims were then? I mean, how much difference do you think they really made to the kind of broader political relationship between the US and, and Britain in this period? Yeah, that's a difficult, a difficult question to answer. Um, I think it depends on 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 your definition of, of what success would look like. Did, did they directly influence uh, foreign policy decisions, for example? Uh, probably, probably not, I would suggest. But I would argue that they did help create um, an atmosphere in which questions of culture and personal connections, if not shaped policy, at least shaped the kind of um, ambience, the milieu in which those decisions were made. So, uh, so long story short, no, I don't think they. I would not be able to point to a, a foreign policy decision or a, a diplomatic event that they shaped as such. But I would suggest that they made certain events and developments more palatable both to public uh, audiences and also to certain figures in both governments. We're talking about two democracies, so public opinion and you know attitudes towards foreign countries, the United States and, and Great Britain is in, is important, of course, so it, it creates that sort of 
context in which in which policies are, are pursued. And I guess if if diplomacy at its root is about personal relationships, providing that that sort of atmosphere that that engenders those positive personal relationships is is hard is is hard to pin down as as something as quantifiable that's an achievement, but is is nevertheless very important. I think so. In your book, obviously, in the title, you refer to public diplomacy and you refer to the Pilgrims' activities as a nascent form of, of public diplomacy. So can you tell us, first of all, just how you understand the term public diplomacy? I mean, what 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 do we mean by that? So I think, as I mentioned, I think in the book, it is difficult to disentangle it from what we would also call propaganda, which itself is a much more loaded term and loaded partly because of its of its um, use during the First World War and interpretations of British propaganda in the US, for example. So uh, propaganda is a difficult term to use and sometimes is more uh, controversial than it than it than is helpful, perhaps. But public diplomacy, I suppose, has typically been associated more with um, events maybe from the 30s, but certainly from the Cold War era, um, sort of informal groups like the sort of Carnegie, Ford Foundations, for example, um, the US Information Agency. Uh, these kind of groups are, are what historians have often focused on as being public diplomacy actors, um, as I say, mostly in the kind of Cold War context, uh, making, you know, in unofficial bodies or, or semi-official bodies that exist in cooperation with uh, the state to, I suppose, speak foreign publics and to try and, again, provide that atmosphere for um, better relations and to promote uh, economic relations or cultural relations. So for me, public diplomacy in this context, you can then put it back into my time period because many of the, the organisations that we associate with that later form of public diplomacy do have um, similarities to groups like the Pilgrim Society that came before. Some of the things that they did, including uh, promoting banquets, um, sorry, having banquets that then are used to promote a particular point of view, um, forging connections between private figures, private bodies, and formal uh, diplomatic figures. These are all things that you see later on as well. So the key point about public diplomacy, I suppose, is that it is that cooperation between private bodies um, and states uh, and has that propagandistic complexion to it. But beneath that, there's obviously different forms it can take. It's uh, so a cultural diplomacy being one of them. And, and Nicholas Cull, who, who I reference in the book and who has published on US public diplomacy, would look as look at cultural diplomacy as being a form of public diplomacy. So that cultural element to it is also important. Thank you. That's a, that's a comprehensive coverage of, of public diplomacy. I suppose just to pin it down in terms of the Pilgrim Society, then, if you've got that kind of broad understanding of uh, of public diplomacy, what does what does this study of the Pilgrim Society contribute? to that that understanding of public diplomacy or, or, or how does it does it change it or interact with the, this kind of the, the general approaches and interpretations that are out there of public diplomacy well i think the main thing is is that it, it brings this takes the story further back than it had been before it looks for the sort of precursors and the the sort of the people and the developments and the groups and the approaches that we then see later on. So I think I think the main contribution is to, to bring this story further back and to 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 see in what what 
what initially just seems like a banqueting club to some to some people, it, you know, is, like I say, it's mentioned in, in books and articles about uh, Anglo-American relations, but mostly as, as I say, a banqueting club that brought people together. Uh, what I was trying to do, I suppose, is to acknowledge that's true, but also examine the way in which it has a wider public relevance and a wider relevance to formal relations and therefore uh, public diplomacy uh, is, a, is a model or a, a sort of analysis that tends to bring out what the Pilgrims was doing and, and explains it in a way that highlights that it does have that public facing element to it and that has that element of, as I say, trying to engender cultural relations as well. So that gives us a kind of longer history of, of public diplomacy um, that incorporates this earlier part of the 20th century and and I suppose conceptually kind of pushes the, the boundaries of what we mean by public diplomacy in terms of these private bodies with these these uh, kind of semi-official links to, to government as well. So public diplomacy, you know, has, as you say, uh, has been studied from the 30s and onwards and particularly in the Cold War much more. And then we get a lot of talk about public diplomacy today in sort of contemporary discussions. Do you think this sort of more historical understanding of public diplomacy, can that can that change the way we think about it in the present, do you think? Do you think it sort of alters the, what we mean by public diplomacy? For me, when you do take the story further back um, like this, it perhaps begins to remove some of the, the, the mystique perhaps around public diplomacy and around ideas of kind of propaganda um, that does characterise later interpretations of it. Because the Pilgrim Society, although they do have that sort of, I mean, for example, some people do think of them as being a sort of uh, secret society or you know, there's various conspiracy theories around them. But in reality, they weren't doing anything um, that they felt as though they should be hiding, if that makes sense. They were, they were doing it very openly. They, they felt that all they were doing was publicizing these things. Okay, we don't always agree with what they were saying, but the point is, it's, it's a fairly neutral thing to do, to, to publicize and to promote. I suppose, it, I, was, I, was once, I was once asked about, um, you know, do I think propaganda and things like public diplomacy are sort of inconsistent with liberal democracies? Um, and I think my answer at the time was, well, not really. You have to kind of answer that question with reference to the, the aims of the propaganda and the, and the public diplomacy. So I'm not sure that answers your question, really. But my, my point simply was, I think taking the story further back does remove some of the, the mystique and the complications that we maybe associate with later discussions around public diplomacy. No, that, that that's enlightening, and I think it is informative to, to kind of modern, more more contemporary discussions of public diplomacy. Just one thing, uh, going back to the Pilgrim Society itself, I suppose. I mean, you you touched there on you know their aims and whether these were sort of controversial or or what they were. I mean, could you could you kind of characterise what the, if it's possible, what the kind of ideology of the Pilgrim Society was? What fundamentally did did they believe in? Obviously, they believed in good relationship between the United States and Great Britain. But beyond that, did they did they have kind of values that you could you could pin down? I'd say initially there was a kind of um a sort of divide or ambiguity at first. There were people in the society who who joined it perhaps through a, a sort of genuine wish for a more general international cooperation and especially the American um figures like uh, Henry Potter who's a bishop in New York and uh, Richard Watson Gilder, a, a New York liberal, they joined it at first, I think, more or less because of a sort of liberal 
um, you know, internationalism at the time, which quite quickly got replaced uh, by a more Anglo-Saxonist, a civilizing mission uh, version of, of Anglo-American relations that we associate with um, in the Pilgrims context with people like Harry Britton and, and George Wilson. That kind of that voice became more dominant, and they became much more clearly uh, Anglo-Saxonist for for the first part of the, the 20th century. Um, discussions around English-speaking peoples, um, a commitment to Anglo Anglo-American, so British and American imperialism. Um, that's true of some of the discussions and some of the statements that came out by Errol Gray, and who the Governor General of Canada uh, in 1906, who I mentioned in the book, who, who speaks at an event in, in New York. So that that becomes the sort of defining ideology for for part of it. So of Anglo-Saxon, UK-US imperialism in support of a civilizing mission. Um, and importantly, uh, sort of international commerce and trade. And that reminds me, you know, of, of Winston Churchill's talk about the English-speaking peoples, which obviously feeds into his famous speech where he declares the, a special relationship between the United States and, and Great Britain. So we can obviously see the links between bodies like this and, and then what emerges at the end of the Second World War. And your study finishes in 1945. What happens this is going beyond your book obviously but what 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 then happens to the pilgrim society well they still exist uh they still exist today and in, fa in fairness to them they, they, they you know i was in contact with them uh when i was doing the research and i used their papers in new york i went to their offices in new york um and they were quite happy to well they showed me, i think they were happy to show me everything uh, i don't know if they weren't but um they, there was no problems uh getting into their offices anyway and using what they had. Uh, their papers in London are in the Metropolitan, uh, London Metropolitan Archive. Again, um, I used them there. And just, just when I started the project, they had been in, in the private possession of, of the society, but they moved them. So I, I'd been in touch with them and they were, they were happy enough to, to let me access materials. From what I could tell, the society loses its importance as a kind of public diplomacy actor really come the end of the second world war and beyond it hasn't whereas in the earlier period and i suppose this is partly why it's of interest they're quite often in the newspapers are reported on they've got they've got a public profile that that perhaps is not true of the later time periods and i don't think um whereas people knew who they were maybe in my period Clearly, later on in the twentieth century, people don't know who they are, so they become less important as a as a as a public facing organisation. They still, I believe, for much of the time period, they would they would do famously would be the, the venue for the first speeches by um, British ambassadors to the US and, and vice versa in the UK for American ambassadors. I'm not sure if that's still the case, um, but it did last for a good while, certainly into the twentieth century. But again, less public uh, focused. Um, I know that they, for a long time, they didn't admit women, obviously, and, and black people were also excluded. And, and indeed, um, that didn't change until I think after, into the 70s, even after that, because Jimmy Carter was invited to join, but I believe he refused and declined because of because of, the, of, of those reasons. So, um, yeah, they remained in existence, but the role, I think, somewhat changed. And maybe is that in part an indication 
of the sort of formalization of public diplomacy a bit and you get more kind of bodies like you mentioned the sort of cold war bodies like u.s information service that that have closer links to governments and maybe these sort of semi-official bodies decline in in importance in turn yes i, th I think so yeah, yeah it's a fascinating book and a fascinating topic we're out of time for our podcast today Thank you very much, Stephen, for joining us and providing some fascinating insights into the Pilgrim Society and some of the broader issues around public diplomacy and indeed Anglo-American relations in the 20th century that the group illuminates. Be sure to get hold of a copy of Stephen's book. It's published by Edinburgh University Press and it's available in hardback, paperback and ebook editions online from all good booksellers. Thank you for listening and do be sure to check out our other DWD podcasts, but goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. To hear further podcasts, please visit the CWD website, lancaster.ac.uk forward slash CWD. There you can find more on the CWD's research, events and teaching, including the MA in International and Military History.